This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hello, my name is Lynn McFarlane, and it's my pleasure to be here on the Right Way Podcast speaking to Sam Elliott about my debut crime novel, The Scarlet Cross. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction to tonight's episode there, Lynn McFarlane, and hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott, a voice I just suspect you've come to know, I'm not going to say know and love, but certainly come to familiarise yourself with over the course of these 70-odd episodes that um, that I've recorded over the past, what, two and a bit years, but yes, again, uh, thank you so much to Lynn McFarlane, who is tonight's guest, who just introduced this particular episode of the Right Way podcast program and you just heard her introducing it. So Lynn McFarlane is a Canadian-Australian writer who spends her time between Sydney and Vancouver Island, uh, but we discussed her debut novel, The Scarlet Cross. The Scarlet Cross uh, first first shot to the notice of the literary luminaries when it won the 2019 Arthur Ellis Unhanged Award for Best Unpublished Manuscript, and subsequently their Pantera, uh, Pantera Press have picked it up, and they Therefore, it has gestated or developed into what has become the Scarlet Cross, which is Lynn McFarlane's debut novel, which centres around Nurse Meredith Griffin as she runs the St. Jude's Hospital's emergency ward. Killer regular comes into the emergency ward bearing um, kind of uh, self-harm injuries. Uh, and then something arises from there whereby she notices a pattern linked with other people or other cases of self-harmers that have um, passed away um, seemingly from self-inflicted injuries but there's obviously more to it than meets the eye much more sinister Uh, so naturally because of what we're discussing i'm going to put in a trigger warning now for issues related to self-harm suicide depression schizophrenia uh, yes uh, there's large amount of mental illnesses discussed as well as self-harm and murder i mean it is a thriller but uh, i want to give you the warning now that those sort of themes are going to be broadly discussed and discussed in depth. So if those do trigger you, and I'll put this into the bio of the description of the episode as well. If they do, then I do recommend that you do not listen to this particular episode. But otherwise, uh, yeah, without further ado, everyone, please give a big digital round of applause to Lynn McFarlane talking to me about her debut novel now out with Pantera Press, The Scarlet Cross. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this evening. How are you going? Really well. Thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. That's what I like to hear. Thank you so much. So what I always like to start with, Lynn, it's an oldie but a goodie, and it's always an important question because there's no two answers are the same, but I want to know where the idea generated or started from that became the Scarlet Cross that uh, ultimately ended with us kind of sitting here now in our virtual chat, having a chat about it. Sure. Well, um, so I've always been interested in writing and I started a manuscript for a YA novel about 15 years ago and the manuscript for that is still in my desktop or in my desk drawer. Um, It never saw the light of day. I sort of got halfway through and and then gave up. I'm a lawyer by trade so I spend a lot of my days writing but it's a very different kind of writing and about, about eight years ago I decided that I wanted to tackle a novel again. I've always wanted to write fiction and I've always read really broadly and I didn't really set out to write a crime, but um, the, the actual inspiration I see for the Scarlet Cross came from a conversation I was having with my sister who is an avid crime writer. 
or sorry, crime reader, reader, and she um, she's also a psychiatric nurse, and she was she was the one who said, you know, a hospital would be a really interesting setting for a crime, and I I heartily agreed with her because she, well, she had all of this background in 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 nursing, and I've also got lots of medical professionals in my family, but hospitals hospitals are often at the core face of crime, particularly in the emergency department. And so I really, I grasped onto the idea. And in that conversation, she also said, you know, what if you had a situation where patients came in with a similar injury, a pattern of injuries? And, and that is what set me off. You know, it was this idea of the setting of a hospital and the idea of this recurrent injury um, showing up as a pattern in the emergency ward that basically kickstarted me into writing the Scarlet Cross. And, you know, I quite often get asked, well, why crime? Why that genre? And I, I've always been interested in crime, but like I said, I read quite broadly. Um, but one thing that crime really strikes me as is it's, it's a genre that now is very broad and very diverse. It's got so many different kinds of, 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 um, of subgenres within it. You know, you've got the cozies, police procedurals, you've got thrillers. Um, so it feels like a genre that's just, that's just so robust and, and varied, but it's also for me, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, tear in the social fabric that's what crime is and it, it rips open the surface of things it allows us to see see underneath um the veneer of our society and it, it really pushes characters right up to their to the edges of their humanity and shows us their flaws but also shows us characters that we often underestimate and and that was a really big thing for me the 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 main character of the scarlet cross is someone who i think many might underestimate mm. a nurse, you know, just a, your average nurse. Um, but she, you know, she reveals herself to be someone who of real fortitude and, and uh, someone who's willing to take matters into her own hands and investigate the crime herself. So. It's interesting that you mentioned that crime is a tearing in the fabric of society, because certainly I, I agree with that. And I wondered uh, if you'd done lots of research because it felt such a well-realized or immensely realized setting of St. Jude, because I mean, the hospital itself kind of Gothic and architecture, at least as I saw it, but right down to the history, the backstory of it as, as well as, you know, starting as a hospice for soldiers. And then also how some of its architecture was founded on a cross or better out in the shape of a cross and then you get into the sort of administration, the kind of Byzantine, Byzantine sort of organisational administration, how that all sort of works or doesn't, as well as people sort of deferring to one another and kind of not really responding to emails and memos and kind of that sort of thing as well. Tell me about that, Lynn. Is that how did that kind of come about? Was that all from your imagination or was that something that sort of arose, particularly because you mentioned that your sister, I think, worked within sort of that field? Is, is that how that kind of worked or how that, how that sort of started? Yeah, the, the, the hospital was, um, so the setting, both the, the city mm. and also the hospital, they're both, they both came from my imagination. I, I know that setting is, well, it's critical in crime, but it's critical really in all fiction, I think. And um, 
I was very concerned when I started writing about being uh, being taken to task for getting streets wrong or, um, you know, I, I was worried about where I was going to place this story. So I decided, no, I'm going to create my own city. It's, you know, this fictional city where the Scarlet Cross takes place. It's called New Westdale. It's modeled after Vancouver or Seattle, but, you know, it's, it's set up in the Pacific Northwest coast, but it is a fictional city. And St. Jude is a fictional hospital. And I'm so glad that you raised, um, you raised the hospital or, or it's, it's history, it's architecture, because that all was a, just a wonderful feat of imagination for me. Like I just so enjoyed creating this hospital, a history of this institution. And, 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 you know, the fact that it was, it started off as a, you know, gifted by Protestants to a group of Catholics, this gnarled piece of escarpment out in the middle of nowhere, you know, far away from the, from, from the base of New Westdale as a town and how it grew and how it became, you know, a place where soldiers could receive palliative care. And then it grew to a, you know, it, it developed a, a, a department for psychiatry because that's, you know, psychiatry is quite often a department in, in hospitals that doesn't get it's not as flash or as um, it doesn't receive as much attention as fun and funding as other departments. And so I just, I just imagined this hospital kind of taking care of the most vulnerable, the most unwanted. Um, and, and I, I loved just layering this imagined, <laughs> this imagined history onto this institution. It did definitely come from, um, from my own thinking and my own thoughts and, and it also allowed me to to research how hospitals were designed um, at that time and how they grew over time. Um, I was lucky when I was when I was when I was actually drawing out because I did you know actually have drawings oh, of the architecture okay. of the hospital and how it was situated and what direction it faced you know what did it face east or west and you know, how was it connected to the original chapel? That was all, it was just such fun. It was, it was, it was a really, really wonderful part of the writing. Um, but it, it, it did allow me to do a lot of research into architecture and into um, how Catholic, Catholic hospitals did, were designed. And I got the opportunity through my sister and through other medical professionals in my family to, to, to look and, 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 and tour hospitals uh, in the Vancouver area. Um, and, that, and those tours actually led me to the tunnels, which um, mm. also became a really important architectural uh, space within the, the imagined space setting of the novel and also within the plot. The tunnels, um, as, as, as you would know, having read it, are a place where Meredith um, finds herself quite often because that's where the morgue is based, and it's also where she um, where she goes to uh, to research medical records, and it's also where she goes to get her illicit stash of, um, of benzodiazepines, which she's addicted to. So, <laughs> is that what it's called, Lynn Adovan? Is that is that I assume that's some fictional kind of name you've given it to it as well? 
It's it's not a fictional name actually. Oh, it's okay. um, Ativan is what that drug is called in North America. So so we, when when Pantera and I when we when we talked about hmm. what should be the predominant language of the medical terms in the book, we had to make a decision about whether we were going to use North American or Australian names. Now that drug exists here. We know the drug as Ativan. Benzodiazepines are also Valium. We know Valium um, is a common name for for uh, benzodiazepines. I think in in Australia it's called something else, but the actual um, chemical formulation is available here as well. So we decided to we decided to use North American names for those kinds of things, and yeah, Ativan is what we landed on for for her particular addiction. Right, fair enough. I mean, it gets the point across, though, doesn't it? I mean, like, I, I do wonder that because th- there's some elements that you've obviously fictionalized, particularly the the setting itself and the the um, where it's located, and that totally makes sense because then, like you said, you're not going to get taken to task for for getting a street wrong or something like that, as well as kind of like not letting yourself be your imagination being impeded by having to do justice to what's kind of there or what's what's in the real world. So I'm glad that you kind of ran with that. But I was just I was just so impressed because it felt like it, it was seriously like a, a borderline real story in terms of um you know i'm kind of treading carefully here because i don't want to spoil anything but i guess just conflicts of interest of church sort of owning grounds that an institution is built on that sort of stuff which very much sounds like a real life sort of um issue that could definitely still kind of be happening even now even contem- contemporary times so i did wonder about that but um i like that you kind of uh made sure to to allow yourself free reign within your imagination but then research kind of what sort of then buttressed your imagination that's kind of how it worked yeah 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 um i definitely wanted to tie in i mean you know so meredith who's the the main character and who Mm. who's the emergency nurse with the psychiatric specialty who's the who's the protagonist and the main driver of the story she um she finds herself in saint jude and and the majority of the novel takes place in the hospital and for her it's her workplace and workplaces you know i wanted to actually have her grapple with the kinds of things that happen in a workplace the kinds of crappy things that happen in a workplace like you know bullying and sexual harassment and you know as you say conflicts of interest and and corruption mm. And, you know, so there is a character, and and this isn't giving anything away, but there is a character who's the general counsel, and I feel like I can take the piss uh, 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 (laughs) piss out of the general counsel because I'm a lawyer myself, but he is, um, you know, definitely a shady shady, um, character in the book. Um, I guess, for me, I wanted to talk about institutional power. I wanted Meredith to grapple with institutional power, and what better place to have a character deal with that force than in a catholic hospital right Mm. the catholic church is probably one of the most established institutions that we've got um that said i didn't i didn't want the catholic church has also done some tremendously important things for healthcare, mm. you know, and they it it does really important things for healthcare in North America and also in Australia. So I I definitely did not want that institution to just be presented as completely evil. I wanted also there to be um 
a theme running through it that there are individuals within that institution who are really doing good because that is actually the truth and and that's why i also introduced camilla and um Ross. and uh, marie murphy because it, those two characters they're marie is a nun camilla is an oblate who's you know uh they're they're both they have basically committed their whole careers to trying within the catholic church within the sort of the the catholic health directives trying to give options to young women who need well-rounded robust reproductive health advice and reproductive health care so part of part of what i was grappling with was was making sure that meredith had to deal with you know the the creepy shady world of the catholic church but also i wanted her to see um I wanted her to be surrounded by powerful um, people who are also doing good in mm. that environment as well. It definitely never felt like kind of a sweeping con- condemnation just on the Catholic church alone or anything. I, I never interpreted it like that. And it's interesting that you mentioned before as well about crime being such a robust genre. Um, I totally agree with you in terms of it sort of allows you to have this narrative lens where you can feature quite a lot of real life issues um, kind of in this succinct way that doesn't necessarily detract from this kind of fast paced story. I think that had it been an examination of historical sort of um, Catholic run institutions or um, then therein kind of opens more of a chance of it being considered or construed as, as a condemnation, but within the context yeah, Lynn, of, of writing this sort of fast paced thriller, you can, you can kind of have fun with that. And like you mentioned before, you, you know, you're having fun with the novel and like you speaking now, I'm totally getting that as well. What do you think? Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the things that, one of the reasons why I just love writing in crime is just, I love plot. I absolutely love plot and I love character and I love the two, the interaction between the two of them. And like, I can't, I, I can't write without, I, in, at my launch, um, Catherine Heyman asked, you know, so Linda, how do you, how do you think of the twists and turns in the story? And I, I couldn't answer that question. And in fact, I think I probably avoided it, you know, very clumsily about three or four times in the, in the, in the conversation at the launch. But when I actually think back to that question, I realized that Plot is one of the things that gets me gets me writing. You know, it's actually the thing that that when I sit down and look at the blank screen, the first thing I ask is, "What's happening in this scene? Mm. And where is this scene going to take us? And or what has just happened previous to this scene that this these characters are having to digest or?" recoil from or recover from you know um so uh, and i i think you know there's 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 a forward motion about plot that i just that's what i find captivating about writing and that's what i find captivating about reading so um yeah um the the thriller is definitely it's just such fun to write and you know one I I remember Tony Jordan I went to a um, a workshop at the Sydney Writers Festival about oh god it must have been about six years ago and Tony Jordan was giving a a, a a class on plotting 
And she had a wonderful exercise where she suggested um, that if you're if you're struggling with plot, you you basically put two characters together and you basically take the top of your head off and go, okay, what are ten things that could happen next? Nothing is too absurd or nothing is too unusual for this exercise. Just put it down on paper. What are 10 possible things that could happen? And it's just really good fun. Like all like it, that, that the plot is really just one of the funnest things about, about the novel, about writing a novel. Yeah. I like hearing you saying that writing is fun because it's something I actually seldom hear on this show that, uh, that it can be, it can be fun. You know, there's all the kind of the sort of the adage of people sort of bleeding on the page. Doesn't, you know, it doesn't take much to write All you do is sit there and bleed and all that sort of stuff. So to hear you having fun is very, very, uh, refreshing. I don't hear it all too often. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that as well. And now tell me my next natural follow-up question to that is, are you a pantser or a plotter? <laughs> um, I am definitely Plotter. Mm, Um, That said, some of the best things that happened in the writing of the Scarlet Cross happened unexpectedly. Mm. So, but I'm I'm pretty I'm a planner when it comes to almost every aspect of my life. So I don't like creatively. I'm I'm that way. I guess I guess there's two kinds of writing I do. Like I I really love I always have a notebook with me and when I don't have a notebook I use my phone. I I, I type out notes on my phone. Um and that's just for whatever comes to my head and it's you know, it can be journalistic and it could be just observational and it might have absolutely nothing to do with my current project. And it's just being in the moment and being um being trying to capture what my thought is or what I'm seeing. Um, and so my notebooks are full, full of stuff, full of stuff that may or may not be used in a novel. But when I'm actually writing a novel, I'm quite structured and, um, and I like that. Like I like knowing where I want to go. And especially with crime, like I, I'm amazed at, at crime writers who can be pantsers because I've, for, you know, in, in the way I structure things, quite often I've got a number of different plot lines and, you know, you have what really happened and then you have what gets investigated and then you have what you're going to reveal to the reader and when. And and for me, that has to be planned. And, um, you know, certainly, certainly within that planning, there's lots of opportunities for surprises and and there's opportunities for uh for rewriting and for you know changing the way the house is is structured like maybe knocking down some walls where you thought that there might need to be some structure or whatever but 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 i'm definitely a planner i'm Mm -hmm. i'm I'm a planner not not a hundred percent you know i think you probably get that that answer a lot where someone will say well i'm kind of both I think I'm probably more on the spectrum of the plot, the planner or the plotter, but, but I, but I have, I have, I have range for both in my process. You'd be surprised. I don't, it's normally one or the other that I get. And, you know, and I could totally, I, I would, I would have picked it. Had you not told me and you said, you tell me which you think I am, I would definitely say that you'd be a plotter just because like you said, there was, it just could, plot as well as several subplots so all that needs needs to have some sort of uh plotting i'm kind of uh pantsing 
uh, crime thriller novel at the moment, Lennon. It's a bit of a nightmare, but I might talk to you a little bit after the recording's off and we kind of uh, continue focusing on you. So what I wanted to talk a little bit about, going back to Meredith working in the emergency room and with the, with the, the first sort of person that, uh, that comes in who's, who's been not so much a regular, but someone certainly that she's attended uh, to before, I wonder what you think it is about someone that can have, particularly someone that works within the emergency sort of room and would speak or deal with, uh, help, I should say, not deal with, help several hundred people at least sometimes a day, how it is that someone can form this sort of instant and such a strong connection that can then compel them to, in this instance with Meredith, find out sort of what's happening to, or what happened to them and sort of refuse to believe that it was a suicide. Yeah, well, I guess there were two things that um, that drove the story in that regard, that mm. drove Meredith's um, ability to recognise. So, so the first victim that comes through is Catherine Richardson. Mm. And... Meredith has a flashback to the number of times that, that Catherine has come in. So she is what they call a frequent flyer. She is someone who comes into the emergency room a number has come in, had come into the emergency room a number of times um, prior to that opening scene. And, and we, we get taken through Meredith's flashbacks about that patient. And we don't really, I don't really I don't really call it out at that point, mm. but Leo Donnelly, Meredith's, you know, new flame, who's also a homicide detective, uh, you know, very conveniently a homicide detective in this story. Um, he's the one that says when Meredith talks to him about this particular patient, she doesn't reveal the patient's name. She doesn't reveal the patient's injury with any specificity, but she does talk about the patient. And Leo says to her, does this patient remind you of Bella, who's Meredith's younger sister? And Meredith realizes that that's exactly right, that Leo's hit the nail on the head. And in fact, this patient, Catherine, had reminded Meredith of her younger sister. And for those who haven't read the book, Meredith's younger sister is very vulnerable herself. She lives with schizophrenia and they've got a very close relationship. Meredith is her, her sole caregiver. Um, so what, we, what we're told effectively in that first part of the book is that the reason why this particular patient had such an impact on, on Meredith is, A, she had come in a number of times. She had struck Meredith with her personality, with her, you know, her, um, her particular uh, characteristics as a patient but also really her personality struck her as so similar to Bella's mm. believe me I want to talk about Bella so I won't go, won't go down that road just yet but um okay I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, because the first victim and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to avoid names because I, I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to give away but I and it's interesting also kind of harkening back to what you said Lynn as well about um one of the original ideas kind of you talked with your sister about people kind of being admitted with the same sort of injury. But then it kind of goes on from there because I felt that with this particular type of person that's admitted like this, it's almost forming the perfect victim uh, and St. Jude becomes the sort of perfect hunting ground because it's someone that I feel, given histories of self-harming, etc., that they become therefore difficult to sort of, obviously they're not alive to kind of convey it, but they're, 
kind of a difficult, unreliable narrator of their own sort of life. People aren't going to believe that, or people have a tendency to believe that it's suicide and self-harm rather than, rather than deliberate malicious act from someone else. Was that something that you kind of thought about organically as well, Lynn, or did that just sort of kind of arise from it? Because I did wonder as to how difficult it would be for um, victims if, the, if indeed this situation happened you'd really need a Meredith kind of uh, determined to find out what's happened. Otherwise I think that it could potentially be dismissed because of the, the nature of the self-harm, et cetera. Well, and that's, I mean, that was exactly the, um, the, the real, the, the real tension in, 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 in the first part of the book between mm. Mark Roth, who's the psychiatrist for these victims and, um, and Meredith is, is the the very subtle nuance which is that meredith believes that catherine in particular the first victim um while she was uh, a person that self-harmed she was not actually suicidal and i think the nuance of that is really important um and she explains it to Leo when they're investigating or when they're looking at photos of another uh, young woman who has, has um, suffered a similar fate is that, is that Meredith says very specifically, well, quite possible that someone who is self-harming is self-harming, not because they want to suicide. Mm. They're doing that almost as a substitute for suicide. They're doing it to relieve pain but they're doing that so that they don't actually do something more drastic and i mean when i first started writing this book i i was actually quite quite interested and concerned about self-harm um and not just in young women but also young men um and self-harm can obviously come in a number of different forms. It's not just cutting. It can be drugs. It can be alcohol. It can be, you know, dangerous behavior of all different kinds. And young men also go through this, you know, in terms of really risky behavior that puts them, you know, their lives at risk. Um, and there is also a theme in this book around, around the impact of social media on, and, you know, and there has, and we know, we know because it's become very public that, um, that social media has contributed to significant mental health issues, um, particularly in the part of young women. So I, I mean, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of tackle those issues, but also tack, but tackle them in a nuanced way that, um, and, and to be fair, to be very fair to the doctors and nurses that work in this territory, you know, the majority of them are 100% focused on suicide prevention. So, you know, the, the, uh, the psychiatric outpatient clinic that features in the Scarlet Cross uh, would be very much 100% focused on trying to ensure that suicide goes down, that the suicide rate of those patient of that patient um, population goes down. So, but yeah, I think what you've pointed out is very is very true that if if when you have this sort of thing suicide can mask foul play or self-harm can mask foul play and and um professionals need to be sensitive to that you know medical professionals need to kind of go oh well is this self-harm is this an attempted suicide or is this foul play 
Yeah, I hope that there's not um, too much of the latter that's uh, that's there and seemingly what's, what's happening in the Scarlet Cross. We touched on, albeit you briefly mentioned, Bella and Bella. Someone I very much wanted to talk about because to me, there's always normally in any novel, no matter how sweeping or grand it is, there's a kind of like a central core relationship I find. And I found that Meredith's and Bella's was definitely for me the, the core relationship and the one that um, certainly um, I found to be what was the, the foundation of, of the story. And I asked a little bit before about um, Meredith and her kind of being devoted to finding out what's happened to victims. And I wanted to talk a little bit about her devotion now to her sister as well, um, which is uh, something, I mean, we, we all have familial devotion, I think, or, or most people have some form of familial devotion, but I think there's something particularly powerful and endearing about someone that is, uh, has a sibling that has particularly schizophrenia and the sort of like devotion and care that uh, is exemplified by Meredith to Bella. It's more so just this acceptance of self and working through whatever sort of situation arises, like the auditory hallucinations at one point, et cetera. I don't want to go into too much because I, don't, I feel that was, that will spoil the story. But what is it about that, Lynn? What is it about this sort of devotion that, that's it's beyond just a sort of familial devotion, but it's actually to do with this sort of um, oftentimes... I don't think there's any other way to describe it, but it can be a very difficult and trying sort of situation for all parties involved. What is it about that sort of familial devotion that um, sort of intrigued your imagination you wanted to capture it? Yeah. So that was actually one of the, when, when I first decided, when I first got inspired to write The Scarlet Cross, mm. um, the setting of the hospital, as I said, was important and, and this pattern of patient deaths but I absolutely wanted to write a story about a caregiver. And um, I didn't want to revert to the traditional mother role. Mm. Um, so the fact that Meredith is the main caregiver for Bella is, is really what, that's where, that's where the, the relationship in my mind started and how, mm. the, how the imaginative process started. Bella's younger than Meredith and... Um, her schizophrenia began when they were both quite young. Um, and what has exacerbated that relationship is the fact that Meredith has lost both of her parents. Mm. So they are effectively orphans. They're two siblings without parents. And that happened when they were both in their late teens. So it, that also happened after um, Bella had been diagnosed as, as a schizophrenic. Um, schizophrenia is very, very difficult to diagnose and quite often um, people who live with it don't actually get that diagnosis until, until they've kind of been given other diagnoses and, and had a lot of different trials with medication. I think that whole process of identifying the medical condition has become better and more sophisticated but certainly it's still a very difficult psychiatric condition to, to diagnose. So um, they are extremely close. Um, they, the unique thing about Bella as well is that she's not, she's only sometimes symptomatic. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when she isn't symptomatic, she 
is a very high functioning individual. She's extremely talented musically. She's a very intelligent and intrepid character. And she's incredibly lucid and insightful about, about their family and about Meredith and also about herself. And so she was a really interesting character to write. I loved writing Bella, but I was also very nervous about writing her mm. because I wanted to um, I wanted to give her agency and I didn't want her to just be this chaotic force. I wanted her to be a very important force and an important force in the actual mystery, which, you know, I won't say anything more than that, but, you know, uh, she the relationship is, is, is a beautiful one. And I'm also, I guess part of what I was writing was I was writing about my own experience with sisters. I've got, I'm really lucky. I've got two older sisters. And so there's a lot of biographical aspects in that relationship. Um, just, you know, I do think that siblings raise us as much as our parents do sometimes. Mm -hmm. so, you know, we learn as much from our siblings as we do from our parents, or at least we can. And, um, we learn also how to parent through, you know, parenting our siblings or, or at least being, being good older sisters or being good younger sisters. So um, I really did want to explore that. And that's, that's, that's really the, the, um, the, uh, the long and the short of, of Meredith and Bella. Mm. I felt that the, the, there was the there was a balance of the darkness and the light as well because I think that kind of with novels, crime novels, all novels, but particularly perhaps particularly crime novels, is it can't always be sort of unrelenting bleakness um, because I think that that could potentially detract from a reader's attention. So there was moments, particularly I found with um with Evelyn's what's Evelyn's place called? The Manor. It's like a manor. What's the what's the name of it? Arden, yeah. Arden, yeah, yeah. Um, with with Charlie there, I felt that that was kind of built. There were there were other times as well. I felt with with Leo and Meredith's interactions as well. There was kind of there was there was moments of of happiness as well to temper the sort of darker moments because there was there is quite a lot of um, dark, not gratuitous, but dark content within sort of what's happened institutionally within the sort of setting. So I felt that there was a good balance there. And yeah, when you mentioned as well with Bella sort of having clarity there are, there are times where she has clarity and certainly I mean I think that she's got the uh is it in our shoes program she does that's at school schools is it yeah yeah I hope that's so not a spoiler Bella, I hope that's not a spoiler sorry you're gonna say yeah, I mean so I'm so glad that you raised that because um that certainly came through in after I um started working on the book with Pantera. Mm. One of the things that um, Pantera was really good at was, was, you know, sort of coaxing me to bring more of that lightness into the, into the novel so mm. that it wasn't just chaos and darkness. <laughs> um, and, and certainly the relationship between Meredith and Charlie, her best friend is, is one that is, you know, critical to Meredith's well-being. I mm. mean, they just, they have a really good time together. Charlie is a, you know, a work hard, play hard kind of girl. And she, you know, she, she likes her, her drink. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and, and the fact that, um, the fact that Charlie and Evelyn are there for Meredith is, it's a really important part of her life. And I know, I know people who have, who have those kinds of people in their lives, people who do have resources and, and step in and support when needed. Um, 
And Bella herself also has this, you know, has this part of her life where she's volunteering and she's, you know, teaching people about teaching about people, people about schizophrenia and about living with schizophrenia and also, you know, playing the piano. And um, I just, yeah, having her being a, a, having her be a well-rounded character was really important to me and having Meredith have some parts of her life that were light and fun Mm. was also really important to me in the writing. Good to, good to hear that there was a balance. And I mean, like what you mentioned, Pantera helped out with that or, or, uh, ushered some of that in but it felt organic it didn't feel like there was just this one particular you know sudden abrupt contrast between darkness and light it felt very organic but it's just that it's something that i maybe it's maybe it's the optimist at heart but it's just something that i kind of look for in all sorts of stories and don't get me wrong i mean lynn i, I love i love my unrelenting bleak uh, particularly classics thomas hardy and and the like but then sometimes you need some dark some light in the darkness of the tunnel and i think you've done that very well there um one sort of element as well that we've mentioned, and you, you, you did mention about Bella wanting her, needing, not so much wanting, but needing her to be this fully developed and realised character that isn't sort of a, a caricature. And I think that um, that could be potentially uh, almost the, the easy, well, not easy, certainly not the most permissible way to, to write a, such a character, but certainly the easier road that a, a lesser writer might take in terms of depicting a sort of caricature of a schizophrenic person. So to actually develop it in such a, in such a way and to, to show the clarity and obviously being incredibly accomplished in her own right, um, lover of, and player of Bach and all the like. So there was, there was just so many elements that I think that has gone into to the weaving of creating this Bella to descend from the pages into the reader's imagination like that. What do you think? Yeah, no, she, um, Bella's, you know, it's funny because when you, when you write a book, you quite often like you have your favorites Mm. (laughs) and um, Bella is definitely one of my favorites in the book. Good. So is Meredith. So is Charlie. I mean, they're all my favorites. In fact, I still haven't like let them go. I, I, you know, I want to write another one with them in it. (laughs) I would be down here to down for, for reading that. But um, for me, I'd probably say, if I was going to say favorite, I'd probably actually, I'd probably say Camilla, I must say. Yeah. And her backstory. Camilla? I was going to say Camilla. Oh, well, Camilla. Yeah. Yeah. You go. Sorry. Well, she is. Um, she she was inspired by someone in my life who 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 has had a real um, impact on me professionally. Mm. So, she, so I had someone in my mind who I modelled Camilla after, and um, I wouldn't call her one of my favourites, but I would definitely call her someone who. Um, uh, I admire and I aspire to, okay. you know, she was, she was a force of nature in her own way. Um, and I think, you know, I won't, I won't say much about how, how it all turns out with uh, Camilla, but I, you know, there is a part of me who, that, that would like to bring her back in a future novel because yeah, she's got lots of depth to her. Well, let's let us not go into any more detail of that because that's that's <laughs> something for for Lynn to think about later in book two. But last question I kind of wanted to ask Lynn, and it's something that I always like to talk about. It's kind of what the the crux of or what the the program was founded on is. I wanted to know if there was ever a time in your life where you kind of uh, reached a crossroads with your writing, in particular, um, your accomplished lawyer, etc. But in terms of your creative writing, 
I wanted to know if you reached a crossroads whereby there was some sort of what we like to call an inciting incident in the literary world and you kind of were determining whether you were going to continue writing or not. And if you did encounter such a, such a crossroads in your journey to this point, what sort of made you prevail? Uh, bearing in mind that some people don't encounter that sort of crossroads. I like hearing those sort of stories as well. It's just, I always find that question to have the most fascinating and insightful answers. Um, so when you say crossroads, you mean a time when I was going to throw in the towel? Yes, that's absolutely what I mean. So I think there are many, many moments. So it took me a long time. I'm going to be very honest. It's, it takes me a long time to write. takes me a long time to read. Um, I read a lot, but I like reading slowly. I like lingering over books that I love and I write slowly and I write in drafts and um, I am not the kind of author who can, I mean, I am so, so much admiration for people who can write prolifically. And um, so how do I answer this? Fundamentally, I, the Scarlet Cross had many moments where I wasn't sure it was ever going to see the light of day. I wasn't sure it was going to be, it was, I was going to be able to finish. And um, sometimes I had to push through those moments where my self-belief failed me mm. and just get my butt back in the chair and start working again. But there were also times when I actually had to leave it alone mm. and I had to basically step away for a month or two because I just, that's what I needed to do. And I guess what I would say to people is you do have to persist and you have to push through. And as Geraldine Brooks says, you know, Geraldine Brooks is one of my favorite authors. I mean, who doesn't love her? She's just amazing. But one of the things that she's, she said, and I've got it on my bulletin board above my computer it's a question. It's a simple question. Do bricklayers get bricklaying block? They don't. They just go back to work in the morning and they lay down their bricks in their mortar and they just work. And so you do, and I really believe in that sort of consistent effort. You just have to lay those words down and keep on building the story and persist. In fact, one of the things that my husband always said to me when I was going through real uh, fits of despair about, about where the book was going, and whether it was ever going to get finished and whether it was ever going to see the light of day was he just kept on saying one word, persist. That's the word that you need to, to have, you know, above your computer. And I guess the, uh, the other thing is, is that in the same way that I've confessed to being a slow writer and a slow reader, I also really, really believe that my career and my working life have contributed to the quality of my writing. I have had the luxury this last year of, of not working. And I thought that I was going to write another book. I was going to write another book in that year. I was going to write it for at least the first draft, get it out, you know, um, get it out to first readers and get some feedback on it. Well, I haven't. I've, I've written 50,000 words of it, but it's nowhere near close to being a first draft. 
And so I just, I think that um, for me, I actually need other activities in my life to feed my writing. And I need those activities to take me outside of my writing mm -hmm. into the real world where I get inspiration from. And so, yeah, I, I just, I think that I've gone through many crossroads with the Scarlet Cross and I've had to do one of three things, persist through the darkness to get to the other side or two, step away from it. Um, or, well, I guess three, allow life to just, you know, you've got to live your life. So, so, so I guess, I guess those are my three methods for dealing with the, the, the vagaries of, of, of writing, you know, um, and, and also probably there's a fourth thing is that I think we should always expect joy. Ultimately writing is a joyful activity. It sometimes feels very painful, but there are moments of pure bliss mm. and pure flow and pure joy, and they are worth all of the pain. So, you know, that's what I would say in answer to your question. <laughs> very good answer to that question. There's a lot to unpack from that, but there was a lot to take away that was just certainly de deeply resonated with me, particularly the, um, the persist, uh, knowing to walk away for a while at least. Uh, and, and also the acceptance of letting life kind of continue, uh, as well, uh, to, to, to not kind of, uh, let your life be defined by an, uh, as yet incomplete sort of manuscript. Um, I think that's very important and I'd probably just add on that always read, Always read books. You mentioned Geraldine Brooks. I'm yet to read The Horse, but very excited. I'm sure you have. I'm currently working my way through Jonathan Franzen's Crossroads, which is my favorite novel of the year so far. But um, yeah, uh, just in terms of read writers um, that make you go, why do I get up in the morning? Uh, but in, in awe and not in jealousy, just just being so enamored with their, their writing and just how brilliant it is. I think that the, the more you mention you read widely, I do too and just reading the best writers you possibly can, because I think that it's, it's, I don't know, I, I don't know if it's for everyone, but I think that a lot of um, writers um, don't have uh, as much jealousy uh, as perhaps some other crafts uh, or professions in terms of admiring other people's works. At least I find personally, I'm mainly basing that off me, So I don't know if that's completely true. I'm just, absolutely talking rubbish but i think that people can read man book or winning authors while struggling with their own writing and just say wow that's that's amazing and actually take that as a form of uh, sort of motivation what do you think i totally totally agree i mm. can't i can't emphasize enough how amazing the australian writing community is and the crime writing community and i i i would be very surprised if it was different elsewhere i certainly know in the canadian uh, writing communities that i've i've been a part of it's the same way we are really genuinely authentically excited about each other's work it's like it is so much uh, uh, I, I hate to be cliche about it but it really is about that rising tide like as soon as you see beautiful words on the page as soon as you see someone translate uh, the depth of their experience and it comes through off the page you just you just get so so inspired by that so genuinely ad, 
you know, you're full of admiration for that individual and it, it lifts your own spirit as much as, as, you know, and I think that, um, you know, the, the, the reading, the, the, you know, reading other people's work and supporting each other, supporting each other's writing is just, it in itself helps you write, mm. you know, um, it, it is, I, I, I just feel so lucky to be part of this community. And, and I, I do think that the way you've described it is, is, is exactly right. It is such a generous and unselfish um, uh, craft, you know, and, and you see it everywhere. You see it in the teachers and in the mentors and in the colleagues and, um, and in readers themselves, you know. So uh, I, it's, it's really quite magical. It is quite magical. Magical is the most apt way to put it. So, yeah, look, Lynn, I just want to thank you so much for talking to me on the Right Way podcast program tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about all things The Scarlet Cross. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Sam. So thank you so much for having me on. And, um, and thank you so much for the podcast. It's wonderful that, that you do this and you give all of us a chance to, to talk about our work and to talk about the craft. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I feel so privileged to be able to talk to you and so many other talented writers as well. It's insane, but I'll tell you all about that when the recording's off. But yes, again, thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you. So everyone, there you have it. That was me and Lynn McFarlane talking about her debut novel, Now Out, The Scarlet Cross, uh, now out with Pantera Press. So huge thanks to Lynn McFarlane talking with me about her debut novel, The Scarlet Cross very enjoyable um, and while I'm in the thank you mood thank you so much to you dear listener for listening to this particular episode of the right way podcast program with me your host Samuel Elliott nearly got trapped into the intro there no just joking uh, but yeah no seriously thank you so much for listening to this episode of the show and all other episodes of the show and what we like to call that ever proliferating back catalog there as well so yeah if you haven't already be sure to give a cheeky follow on Spotify if you're listening to it there or SoundCloud if we reshare on SoundCloud But yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Check out the others if you haven't already. Stay tuned. A lot more episodes coming your way as well as a few bits and bobs. Exciting things kind of going on in my own sort of writerly pursuits there as well. So stay tuned. Uh, Yeah, because I'm excited to share that sort of stuff with you depending upon how it goes down. So in the interim, thanks so much for listening to this episode and have a lovely evening.